Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. So we are in the book of Romans, and we have been working through uh, Romans 1 and Romans 2, and we are almost here at the finish line of Romans 3. But Paul uh, shifts gears in this passage. Um, And let's just jump right into verse 21 because uh, there's uh, some great stuff in this passage here. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So here, uh, the phrase, the righteousness of God, can mean um, God's way of justification or his way of making a a person righteous. Um, But Paul says that that thing, that justification, that way of making a person right, God making a person righteous, it actually stands apart from the law. Um, Now, why does he say that? Well, there's two reasons here. First, because he's already said in the previous verse, verse 20, that for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the point is that the law is like a mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you see what you see. You see what exists. You see what is unless you have some sort of magic mirror that makes you look better than you actually look. And in case, in that case, I want it. And if it's on Amazon, I have Prime. Okay? But the law is meant to reveal to you the state of your soul as it pertains to sin. The law is the will of God, and sin is... What we do when we break the law or we disobey the will of God. That's the simplest definition of sin. It's just disobedience to the will of God. And the, the, what we call the law is his will. So he says, this is what I want you to do. And then you say, well, you know, I'm not really into that. And, um, but Paul says, there's nobody who's going to be justified by, by merely obeying the law. You can obey the law to a degree, but it just, it's, it's not there. The Mosaic law wasn't there just to, or, or to justify you. It was there to expose your need for justification. And then the second reason uh, why it stands apart from the law is going to be in the next verse. But before we get there, I just want to make a distinction here. I just talked about the Mosaic law. And um, how many people know that there are different kinds of law here? This is in a very important caveat, a uh, theological distinction that uh, is a little bit fine, but I want you to track with me here because some people get confused about this. Um, some people are, are um, I've heard this said, uh, even quite popular preachers, will say, I'm not under law, bro. I'm under grace. Now, Paul says that. He says, I'm not, you know, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. But the question is, what do we mean by that? Because many times that is used to avoid talking about sin, to avoid talking about the will of God. And so we have to understand that there are different kinds of law First, um, primarily here in this context, when Paul says the law, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, okay, or the Mosaic law. Um, So that was the law that Moses gave Israel. Remember, he comes down from Mount Sinai, right? And um, he you know, has the Ten Commandments and they're breaking the Ten Commandments and he smashes them, but then God makes them again. So the Mosaic law 
And all of the ceremony that came along with that is what, it's, what Paul's referring to. And then he also says the prophets, uh, being the prophets of Israel. So that whole Jewish uh, Mosaic covenant, covenantal system is really what he's primarily, Paul's primarily referring to here. But the law has four other, or three other definitions, four in total. But here's another definition of the law. It can mean the natural law. What's the natural law? Well, we kind of touched on that in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where it says that, Paul says that the pagan, the Greek, obeys the law without actually having the law. Without having the specifics laid down for him, in the, that, that are in the Mosaic law, the Greek and, or the pagan kind of has this law that he recognizes in nature. And uh, Alan was just talking about Aristotle and, and Aristotle wrote this famous book called the Nicomachean Ethics, which is actually a great book in terms of spelling out uh, b- basic fundamental understandings of, of reality. Um, things that we actually don't really believe anymore. Like uh, Aristotle talks about what a woman is. Yeah, very, very simple. You know what he says? He says a woman is a person with the capacity to be impregnated. That's, that's his definition of a woman. I think that would be pretty helpful for a lot of people here. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people in, here as in New York City. Yeah, I think... Hopefully, you guys know what a woman is. Um, but you don't, if you don't, I mean, I don't, know, I don't want to take anything for granted. We're in New York, so uh, some of you may not. So, but then he says, um, Aristotle says that a man is a person with the capacity to impregnate. So basically, your, your sex, your, uh, uh, your, your sex determines... Okay, who you are. That's basic reality. You can't change that. Now you can disfigure that. You can, dis- you can try to physically destroy that. But it's, it's hardwired into who you are. So even a guy like Aristotle who didn't know Jesus Christ, he could understand basic truths that we are having a hard time understanding today. So this is what we mean by the natural law. It's the moral order of the universe that is able to be understood by general revelation and human reason. Number three, the third uh, kind of law that Paul will talk about is the law of nature. Now, the law of nature is not the same as the natural law. The law of nature has to do with um, your, well, the way that things just are. You know, uh, the law of nature is that if you're in the jungle and you see a tiger and the tiger sees you, you're probably going to be his appetizer. (laughs) If you have a gun, you can shoot him, right? So that's my policy. If I see a tiger, I shoot him or he eats me. You know, it's like, it's basically, it's the law of the jungle. But I don't blame a tiger for trying to eat me because that's just the law of the tiger. It's the law of the jungle. Animals, depending on, you know, how predatory they are, will try to predate. You know, predator's going to predate, you know? And so I don't blame animals for eating each other or even for eating humans because we understand this as a law. Now, as it pertains to us, there, are, there is an animal function that we have as humans because we're hylomorphic beings. We are composite creatures, right? So we have been, we have been given a mind, which is our spiritual uh, divine quality, right? Um, but we don't share uh, that, that, that divine quality of our intellect and our will, free will, that is not the same as our, our body. Our body is subject to, um, you know, it's a material body, right? And so it's, it's very similar to animals. Animals eat and we eat. Animals have sex and we have sex. And these are very animal desires. 
Well, these are, so this is a law of the body. And Paul will talk about this in Romans chapter seven, verse 25, where he says, I notice in myself uh, a law in my body that's different than the law in my head. And I know that this is wrong, but I still want to do it in my body. So there's a law of the body. Now, the fourth type of law is the law of Christ. Did you know that Christ has a law? Yes. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, it's also called the law of the spirit of life. Paul says that the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, obey the law of Christ. In James chapter 1, verse 25, it talks about the law of liberty. This is the law that even Christ uh, uh, accentuates and augments and says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law of Christ. It's the law of love. So Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to obey my commandments. So when someone says, I'm under, you're under the law, but I'm under grace. Well, hold on. There are different forms of law. But what Paul is referring to in this, in this context here, when he says the law, he's particularly, as I said, talking about the Mosaic covenantal system, which can also be included in the natural law. I should say the natural law can be included in that. Um, however, um, Paul goes on and says that the, the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? It means that the Old Testament scriptures and the, basically the Mosaic Law and the prophets, they prefigured, this whole covenantal system prefigured and foretold of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And uh, it also says in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, to, uh, to Christ, all the prophets bear witness. And so the Old Testament scriptures prepared Israel for a Messiah. And uh, that word Messiah just means the anointed one, which is in Greek, Christos, the Christ, the anointed one. So Christ and Messiah, same word, different languages. But the idea is that Israel was looking for the Messiah uh, because it was, he was prophesied about that he would conquer the devil in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would make atonement for the sin of the nation in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 12, through 12. And he would, the Messiah would renew the heart of man, uh, which is prophesied about in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, and that he would found a new covenant, a new way of life. And that's found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. So in verse 22, uh, 22, Paul goes on and says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so here in this verse, Paul discloses why he had said the second reason why he had said that the righteousness of God stands apart from the Mosaic law. And here's how. We are made righteous not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. That is his, his point. That the law does not, there's, you can't put your faith in the law. The law didn't die for you. The law is, the law um, is, not the Mosaic law, the Mosaic system was, was rooted in sacrifices, animal sacrifices, but those animal sacrifices actually were, were pre prefiguring the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we're to put our faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says. Now, this leads to a question. What is faith? What is faith? Now, some people might answer that question and say, well, I know what faith is. Faith is blabbing it and grabbing it, confessing it and possessing it, saying it and spraying it. Faith, faith is naming it and claiming it. 
I just speak it into existence. I decree it and declare it. That's what faith is. Faith is whatever I want it to be. You know, uh, that's that's called the word of faith movement in in Protestantism. Um, They're crazy. Look out for them. But but this is interesting because it doesn't just it doesn't just affect um, Protestantism. Um, It affects even the world that we live in. I'll be walking down Broadway and on the pavement in front of me, it'll say, dream until your dreams become reality. (laughs) Now that is, that's the world's take on faith. That's That's the ungodly. Their take on faith is you can change reality by just fantasizing about what you want it to look like. Faith is not fantasy. Faith is putting your trust in truth. Faith is interconnected, deeply interconnected into reality. But the difference is that faith is connected to the highest reality, which is the supernatural. And so, (laughs) oh, we're going, trust me. When we get there, you won't want to be there, by the way. (laughs) All the people from the first service said, amen. Okay. Faith. (laughs) The first service is still, still sore. But, you know, I'm sore when I leave the, the massage table too, right? You know? So, okay, here we go. Faith is composed of three elements. Ready for them? Three elements. First, faith is believing Jesus. Faith is trusting Jesus. And faith is obeying Jesus in love. All being done in love. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe. You must believe. But you believe the word of the Lord. Not your word, but the word of the Lord. Some people, again, in the faith movement, they put their belief in what they want it to be. Well, I want to be healed, so I'm healed. In Jesus' name, I lay hands on myself. Well, did you hear, did you hear a word of, 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 did you have a word of knowledge about that? Did God speak to you about that specifically? Or are you just assuming and presuming and speculating? God does not bless presumption. Presumption is walking out of alignment with the will of God and guessing, thinking that you're going to do, you're going to please him by what you think he wants. But you haven't, you don't know what he wants. And instead of waiting on him, you act. Abraham didn't wait for the promised child. And he had Ishmael. Oh, he had a child, all right. It was just cursed. Because, because he thought that he could just do whatever he wanted. Faith is not presumption. Faith is not fantasy. But faith is trusting. And faith is obeying. James chapter 2, verse 26 says this, Faith without works is dead. Dead faith. There's no point in the life of any patriarch of the Old Testament, any man or woman in the Old Testament who listened to God and had a word from God and believed God and had faith in God and didn't obey him. That wouldn't have worked for Abraham. If God said to Abraham, well, God did say to Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to go out, leave your father's house, leave Ur of the Chaldeans, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. 
And if Abraham said, oh, I believe you, God, and I trust you, I'm just not going to obey you. I'm not going to go. That wouldn't have been faith. But his faith was interconnected. His belief was interconnected with his obedience. James says it very clear. Even the demons believe. They just don't obey. They're just not in alignment. In fact, that might actually be the definition of a demon. But Paul goes on, he says this. He says, um, there is no distinction. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So what does he mean by this? Well, he explains what he means by this in the next verse. Verse 23. For all have sinned and, fallen sh- and fall short of the glory of God. So by saying there is no distinction, Paul is saying both Jews and non-Jews have sinned. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 says, In Christ Jesus there is no Jew or Gentile. So the distinction that Paul is making, this is very important. Paul is saying that Jews need Jesus. There's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, in certain parts of Brooklyn, this probably isn't the most popular message. If I said to Ben Shapiro, hey, Ben, you need Jesus. I love the conservatism. You need Jesus. Ben might respond, but Gabriel, you don't understand. Of course, I, I'm a Jew. I follow the law of Moses and I talk really fast. And, and I would say, Ben, you need Jesus. Trust me, I can talk really fast too. <laughs> but we do live in a time where we've kind of lost that message. Where we, 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 we kind of think, well, no, God's got a special plan for the Jews. We don't have to evangelize them. They're his people. They're his chosen people. Listen, the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant has been revoked. It is old. God has not, God is is done with that wineskin. There is a new wineskin and it is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that same gospel that we we preach to the non-Jew that we preach to the Jew. And I want to tell you this, the New Testament was a church of Jewish people. Paul did not, Peter did not stand up on the the day of Acts, or on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, and preach a different message to his Jewish brethren that he would preach to the the Gentile world. No, in fact, it 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 was actually a much more fiery, convicting message than he would probably preach to the Gentile world because he actually said, you've killed Christ. He put it at their feet and he said, he said, you guys have killed the Lord and Savior. Now you did it in ignorance, but you did it. Now here's your opportunity to change. And they said, what what, what must we do? And he tells them the same thing that he would tell anybody else. Repent and be baptized. Baptism, baptism is the sacrament of faith. So when we come to baptism, we proclaim our faith in Christ Jesus. This is the Bible. This is not a political message. This is truth. This is what the church teaches. So we need to pray for the conversion of the Jewish people because we love them. Now, here's a caveat. Paul says, all have sinned. All have sinned. So Jews and Gentiles and non-Jews, they have every, every single person has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the one caveat here is that Paul is not saying that there are no, he says there are no distinctions, but he does not say there are no exceptions. Christ is an exception. Christ never sinned, entirely sinless. His entire life, he had a, a human nature and a divine nature and both natures in one person, We call it the hypostatic union. And in that one substance, 
There was complete and total perfection. Jesus never sinned. And I would also say that the, um, the church has taught over the last 2,000 years that children under the age of reason are also affected by original sin, but they do not uh, with volition sin. So, so children under the age of reason, um, the church makes an exception and says, if you're, if you're a child under the age of reason or if you're handicapped, um, in, in, in mentally handicapped, you have, uh, there is an exception as it pertains to personal sin. Because we do have to understand that we are all wounded in our nature by original sin that we have inherited from Adam and Eve, okay? It goes, that's why they call it original sin because it goes all the way back to origins, the origin of mankind. So it's original sin. All the human race has been affected by that original sin. I'll tell you how. You want to know how? It's called death. God said to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of this tree, Genesis 2, verse 17, you shall surely die. And guess what? We all die. Except me, I'm going to live forever. God told me. Special revelation. Put my faith in it. So, we all die. Children are subject to death. And so, children are affected by original sin. However, again, the caveat is that they do not, they're not guilty of personal sin. But we are, we're guilty of both. Well, we're, 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 a, we're wounded and affected by original sin. And then, out of that wound, we wound. We wound God. And we wound our neighbor. And most of all, we wound ourselves. We are, every single time you sin, you wound yourself. You never break the law of God. The law of God cannot be broken. You break yourself. If you want to know why you're so messed up, take a look inside. Take a look at the decisions that you've made in your life. Sin brings death. Personal sin. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice what Paul says there. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul doesn't say you were bad. He doesn't say you were bad. He says you were dead. The primary problem with the average person is that it's not that they're bad, it's that they're dead. And Christ is in the resurrection business. Paul goes on and he says, we fall short of God's glory. This can mean that we fall short of God's praise. But it also means that we fall short of eternal life and eternal righteousness. The eternal righteousness that God wants to give us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, Christ in you is your hope of glory. We fall short of God's glory. But in Christ, we have a hope of glory. In fact, only in Christ is there a hope of glory. And I want, I want to be very clear about this. Politically, you know, politicians will say, oh, we can hope. We're going to hope. We're going to hope. We're going to hope in Barack Obama. We're going to hope in Donald Trump. I was at the March for Life uh, on Friday in Washington, D.C. And I'm, I'm walking and looking at all these events and uh, there was a giant kind of booth of paraphernalia and it said, uh, Trump, uh, save America. Donald Trump, 2024, save America. <laughs> Listen, I know I'm speaking to a room full of Republicans here, okay? <laughs> because we vet Democrats at the door. 
We check them. Okay, you got to show your Republican ID to get in here. And if you didn't, ushers, please, okay? Just discreetly, please, throw them, throw them out the window. But be discreet and gentle, okay? And shut it quickly so we can't hear their screams. So... Donald Trump is not the savior of America. No politician can save America. You got to get that understood, right? This nation, this nation is saved by God and God alone. And we look to God. We look to Christ. We look to Christ. I'm, I'm at a point right now where I don't even know if I would vote for a politician if they didn't agree with me on that point. Any politician that comes and says, I'm going to save, I'm the strong man, I shall save the day. I'm Superman. That scares me. That scares me. I'm looking for politicians that say, no, 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 no. Christ is king. Christ is king. Even if I'm president, he's the president of presidents and the Lord of lords and the king of kings. We need to get, that's, that's the first political principle of my politics, as it should be of every Christian's. Our first loyalty is to Christ. But vote for Donald Trump in 2024, okay? This message was brought to you by the Republican Party and TPUSA. No, 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 no. No, we're voting for DeSantis. Okay, 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 here we go. I told you you wouldn't like it, all right. Here we go. So Christ is our hope of glory. Second Peter chapter uh, one, verse four says, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these promises, you may escape from the corruption that is in politics. No. Through the promises of God, you escape the corruption that is in the world because of sin and passion sinful passion, and, and, and we get to become, it says, partakers of the divine nature. That's your destiny. Your destiny is to become a partaker of the divine nature, to become, by grace, what God is by nature. Divinization. God wants you to become perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect partakers in the divine nature. That's your hope. Nothing on this world will satisfy that hope. And so we fall short of that glory. We have all sinned and we fall short of that glory. We cannot find that glory on earth. There's no politician. There's no political platform. There's no Thing on earth, there's no money that can satisfy that problem. And you'll find that people with a lot of money who experience a lot of material glory, they're miserable. Especially when they're trying to find glory in that. Because nothing really will satisfy because the deepest problem isn't material, it's spiritual. But I have a bone to pick with people who look at this passage. This, you know, this passage is the key for understanding how to witness to someone of Christ and to teach someone about the gospel. You know that you can talk to your friends about the gospel? It's really, really simple. I would say this passage right here is the key passage. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the passage that I think is missing from modern evangelism. I think the fact that, I think we take this passage out of the Bible when we're witnessing. I think we take this passage out of the Bible when we're preaching. And I think we make our evangelism weak. And therefore, we make our converts weaker because they don't come understanding that they are sinners in need of a savior. Come on. 
But, but again, I, I, can't, I can't emphasize this enough. I can't do it enough. Because Paul doesn't do it enough. He, he goes on, this is the third chapter where he's been talking about sin is the problem. The problem is sin. That's the problem today in the world. The problem isn't the government. The po- problem isn't inflation. The problem isn't j- job losses. The problem isn't material lack. If, I just, if, we just, if we just make sure that everybody gets enough money so that they can get everything that the rich have, then everything will be great. No, everything won't be great because they're still going to be depraved. They're still going to be sinners. The problem is sin. And there are a lot of churches that don't want to talk about this because it makes people fidgety. And why does it make them fidgety? Because it crosses their will. Because they're sinners. But Paul has, has gotten to this verse, Romans 3.23, and this represents the conclusion and crescendo of his theology for the past three chapters. Remember, Romans chapter 1, the message that I preached, and everybody hated me for it. No, I'm kidding. You all but you did send me nasty DMs and, it was, and, you th- and I got death threats. Can you believe that? No, I'm kidding. Or am I? <laughs> like, I would like to kill this guy. Good. Where's Pastor David? Okay. He's not coming back, okay? So you're stuck with me. <laughs> okay, no. Romans chapter one. The Gentile world, the, the pagan world is sinful, depraved and wicked. Romans chapter 2, the Jews are sinful and wicked. Even though they have the law, they do not obey the law. They're hypocrites. And then he, continue, and he, and then he triples down in Romans chapter 3. No, not one is, sin, is, is, is righteous. No one seeks God. Oh, Paul, you're being a little extreme here. No, he's proving a point a point that we don't want to admit, you see. Because if we admit this point, our whole life crumbles. Because your life, the life of the average non-believer is built on achievement and success and what you've accomplished, and how you've shown yourself to be put together. I'm, look at me, I've, I've gotten, I went to college, and I became a respectable person, and then I got a job, like, and, and I look down on people who don't do what I do, and, and I live in this area code, and I earned the money that I got, and I did this for me, and I am me, and I and we and me, and I'm a narcissist. <laughs> but we think that we can earn this this thing through our actions and God is, and and the scripture is saying we can't. And the scripture is saying that the problem is with us and not with God. But there are churches and pastors who will not say this. And instead what they say to people is you belong before you believe. You belong before you believe Chill out. Don't worry. You belong before you... You may not know what's going on here. Welcome to church. Church. You may not know what's going on here, and you may be wowed by all this stuff, and we just want to let you know. You belong before you believe. True, you do. You belong in hell. You belong in hell. You've offended an eternal God. And therefore, the punishment for that offense is eternal death. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says this. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. You belong under the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, everybody's like, I'm not, I'm not any of those things. The sexually immoral, okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Sorcerers, idolaters, and if you're still on the list saying, oh, no, I haven't done any of that, all liars, <laughs> which you just did, <laughs> all liars will have their portion, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. For eternity. Liars go to hell. Liars. What's so bad about a lie? You know, people lie to themselves. I think they, sometimes people refuse the gospel because they've lied to themselves that they're a good person. Paul goes on in verse 24 and he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now here in verse 24, we've moved on to the gospel. We've talked about the bad news, but here's the good news. We are justified by his grace as a gift. We are made righteous. How? By grace. Grace is the cause of righteousness. Not, N-O-T, not the law. And not only that, grace is unmerited. It's not because you're a successful businessman. It's not because you have a degree in whatever you have a degree in. It's not because you're the smartest person in the room. It's not because of any accomplishment. It's not because of your family pedigree. Gabriel, you don't understand. I live in the Hamptons with my family. I'll take you on my boat and explain all of it to you. And once you see and behold me in my glory, you will understand that I have earned my salvation. That God looked upon me and he said, this guy, this guy's a winner. I only pick winners. I only pick winners, okay? Okay? I only pick people I think that are going to win, okay? And I haven't really sinned, okay? I try not to. I try not to, okay? That was for free. You can catch me at the local comedy club on Monday nights, 8 p.m. Um, grace is unmerited. It's a, he says, you've been saved by grace, and that is a gift. Now, I know one thing about gifts, because I like getting them. You don't earn a gift. You receive it. You just receive it. That means that everything that we have in the Christian life is a gift. Our faith is a gift. You know, you should pray for people to become Christians. Because by your prayers, God may grant them the gift of faith. Hope is a gift. Love is a gift. Even our repentance comes from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, for it is the gift of God. Amen. Now I will say this. There is a way to receive. There is a way to receive. You know how you do it? Put your arms out like this. Yeah. 
and make sure there's nothing in them. I will say this, to receive the grace of God, we must repent. Repentance is opening up your hands and making sure there's nothing in them. God can't fill you if you're already filled with sin, with darkness. So repentance is necessary. Much like if we want the light to shine in this room, we have to take any drapes down that become obstacles. Sin is an obstacle to the grace of God. And so that's why on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he, Paul sta- or Peter stands up and says, repent and be baptized. In other words, turn away, turn away, so that you can turn to. So that, so that you can receive, put down the sin so that you can receive the grace of salvation. And Paul goes on and says, this, this, this comes through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Redemption, the word redemption meaning to buy back, to, to pay a debt. Paul is referring to the debt of sin and the punishment that is, that is the effect of sin. And only Christ could redeem us from the debt of sin because he was sinless. And so, verse 25, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, passed, he had passed over former sins. So Paul says that God put forward this plan of salvation from eternity. In Ephesians chapter one, verse 11, it says, being predestined according to the will of him, we are predestined according to the will of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God in eternity planned his, this, that this would be the redeeming plan, that, that this would happen. We do not serve a God who is surprised by sin. We do not serve a God who's actually surprised by anything. He is omniscient. He knows all. And he acts from his omniscience. But this word here, right here in verse 25, propitiation. This is a very important word. Paul uses it. In the Greek, it means mercy seat. Uh, The NRSV uh, translates this a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, Another translation says a means of reconciliation. But the point here is that in the Old Testament, Paul is using Old Testament imagery to explain the reality that is in Jesus. And he says that uh, based, or sorry, it says that there was a mercy seat in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 25, 36. The mercy seat was the place in the Holy of Holies, the temple, Old Testament temple, where um, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of Moses, and where really the, the presence of God in his holiness dwelt. And on the Day of Atonement that uh, is called Yom Kippur, in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, it talks about the high priest going in and sprinkling the blood of a sacrificial lamb uh, on this mercy seat. And the sins of the nation of Israel over the last year were forgiven. Based on this liturgical act, this ceremonial act. And so that was all foreshadowing what Paul is explaining here, that Christ has become our propitiation. He has become our mercy seat, where his blood has not only covered us, but cleansed us of all unrighteousness. He has satisfied for us. And this vicarious satisfaction redeems us from the debt of original sin, which is spiritual death, and obtains forgiveness for our personal sins, which, which result, if those sins go unforgiven, in eternal death. So we have spiritual death through original sin, and then we're headed for eternal death because of our personal sins, our actual sins. But again, the blood of Christ is, has made atonement for all sin, all sin. 
First John chapter, uh, first John chapter two, verse two says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. His blood has the capacity to forgive every single person of anything, everything that they've ever done or perhaps ever will do. That is incredible. It was a vicarious satisfaction. I said this in the first service. I'm not a fan of substitution, the word substitution. Christ wasn't your substitute because you could never have paid the debt. He didn't step in and say, let me pay it. I know you're going to pay, but let me pay. I'll substitute. No, no, no. You could never have paid the debt. He wasn't your substitute. He was your sacrifice. And he is your sacrifice. Because this is an ongoing relationship. Christ's sacrifice has reconciled us back into relationship with the Father. And now we walk in this reconciled relationship where we were once ostracized. We didn't know who God was. Now God has brought us into his family and we've, been, we've become sons and daughters of God all through the atonement. That word atonement means at one mint. We have, made, we have been made one with God. And we live by faith, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's deeply personal. And, all, and, and he says all of this, this incredible work, the work of atonement, all of it is simply to be received in faith believing that Christ paid the debt that you could not owe or could not pay, as the song says. He paid a debt he did not owe and I owed a debt I could not pay. Worship team can come up. It's this simple. I want you to understand something. The gospel is this simple. You just believe it and you receive it. But the gospel, even though it's simple, I will say this. This message will scandalize certain people. It will trip some people up. The people who are scandalized by the gospel are self-scandalized. They're self-scandalized because they're self-righteous. And they really don't get the gospel. They don't get that you can't earn it. And they look around to other people and they say, well, this guy didn't earn it. Well, this girl didn't earn it. How can they, I mean, I can understand me being forgiven, but no, them, no, absolutely not. You gotta earn it. They want mercy for themselves and justice for everyone else. That's not how this works. Here's a test for understanding. This is a test for for understanding if you know what the gospel means. Because if you don't understand what I just said, you may not understand the gospel. Think of, this is just a test, okay? I want you to think of the worst person in recent human history. Go. I'll give you a hint. His name starts with H. Any takers? Anybody? I? It rhymes with Pitler. (laughs) Any more clues you need? Do you need any more help? Phone a friend? Okay, the blood of Christ can save Hitler. Probably not, because he he was really bad. But what I'm saying is, based on probability, probably, I don't know. I don't want to make a judgment that's Jesus. But I want to tell you this. You might be in heaven with Hitler. Does that bother you? 
it bothers the religious person inside of me because I, I, I want to I say, no, he has to pay for eternity for what he did. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If, if Hitler repented and if Hitler truly believed in the gospel, even on his deathbed, yes, yes, like the thief on the cross, he will be with me in paradise. Mao Zedong, murderer, massacre. Stalin, murdered and massacred all these people. The blood of Christ can cleanse them of all of their unrighteousness. There's no sin that is too great for the blood of Christ to cleanse. Come on, do you believe that? Osama bin Laden. Joe Biden. <laughs> Stealing an election's pretty serious, right? I'm kidding. I'm joking. That was a joke. Little comedic relief. You're going to need it for this next point. Now I want you to think of the worst person, not in recent history, but in your own recent history. Who do you judge? Your father for what he did to you? Your mother for what she didn't do or what you wanted her to do? Your brother? Your sister? Your stepfather, your stepmother, stepbrother, former employer, your ex. Your ex-boyfriend, your ex-girlfriend, your ex-husband, your ex-wife. They've offended me and they, I'm not forgiving them and they have to earn it. If they want me to talk to them again, they have to earn it, earn it, earn it. Oh, right, just like you earned the grace that God's given you. Just like you've earned the forgiveness of sins, the thousands of times that you have offended a holy and a righteous God. He, God, is the innocent party. In every case, we are the guilty party. And yet we have offended God over and over and over again. God can forgive all of those sins of the people that you hate and have blocked on social media. Come on, come on. Let me see your block list. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter six, and I'll, I'll be finished here. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive your trespasses. The gospel must change you today. You need to understand this. If you don't understand what I'm talking about right now, you do not understand the gospel. If you are not willing to release forgiveness to other people, God will not release forgiveness to you. The gospel must change you. The gospel must change you. If it doesn't change your heart, you haven't received it. The gospel must change you. Really quickly, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That he might be just. Paul is saying that by remitting sins, God is just in himself because he did not spare his own son. He said, no, I am just. Sin must be accounted for. I am a holy God. And my justice is holy. But then Paul says that he is also not just just, but the justifier, pointing to his mercy. The fact that he is, he is both just and merciful. And his mercy triumphs over his justice. And that the gospel is about Jesus and his work, not us and our work. 
but it's about accepting his justice and his mercy. The gospel shows that both God's justice and his mercy work together for our good because he loves us. This isn't a seesaw, it's a complete picture. It is with the arms of justice and mercy that a holy, loving God embraces fallen, sinful men. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts 20.27 says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio and around the world so believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.